My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, the story podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 126, and I'm reading from the NIV version of the Bible, 1 Kings 7, Ecclesiastes 1 through 3, and Psalm 4 and 5. 1 Kings 7. It took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his palace. He built the palace of the forest of Lebanon 100 cubits long, 50 wide, and 30 high, with four rows of cedar columns supporting trimmed cedar beams. It was roofed with cedar above the beams that rested on the columns, 45 beams, 15 to a row. Its windows were placed high in sets of three facing each other. All the doorways had rectangular frames. They were in the front part in sets of three facing each other. He made a colonnade 15 cubits long and 30 wide. In front of it was a portico, and in front of that were pillars and an overhanging roof. He built the throne hall, the hall of justice, where he was to judge, and he covered it with cedar from floor to ceiling. And the palace in which he was to live, set farther back, was similar in design. Solomon also made a palace like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had married. All these structures from the outside to the great courtyard and from the foundations to eaves were made of blocks of high-grade stone cut to size and smoothed on their inner and outer faces. The foundations were laid with large stones of good quality, some measuring 10 cubits and some 8. Above were high-grade stones cut to size and cedar beams. The great courtyard was surrounded by a wall of three courses of dressed stone and one course of trimmed cedar beams, as was the inner courtyard of the temple of the Lord with its portico. King Solomon sent to Tyre and brought Hiram, whose mother was a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, and whose father was from Tyre and a skilled craftsman in bronze. Hiram was filled with wisdom, with understanding, with the knowledge to do all kinds of bronze work. He came to King Solomon and did all the work assigned to him. He cast two bronze pillars, each 18 cubits high and 12 cubits in circumference. He also made two capitals of cast bronze to set on the tops of the pillars. Each capital was five cubits high. A network of interwoven chains adorned the capitals on top of the pillars, seven for each capital. He made pomegranates in two rows, encircling each network to decorate the capitals on top of the pillars. He did the same for each capital. The capitals on top of the pillars in the portico were in the shapes of lilies four cubits high. On the capital of both pillars above the bowl-shaped part next to the network were the 200 pomegranates in rows all around. He erected the pillars at the portico of the temple. The pillar to the south he named Jaquin, and the one to the north, Boaz. The capitals on top were in the shape of lilies, and so the work on the pillars was completed. He made the sea of cast metal, circular in shapes, measuring 10 cubits from rim to rim and 5 cubits high. It took a line of 30 cubits to measure around it. Below the rim, gourds encircled it, 10 to a cubit. The gourds were cast in two rows and one piece with the sea. The sea stood on 12 bulls, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The sea rested on top of them, and their hindquarters were toward the center. It was a hand's breadth in thickness, and its rim was like the rim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It held 2,000 baths. 
He also made ten movable stands of bronze. Each was four cubits long, four wide, and three high. This is how the stands were made. They had side panels attached to uprights. On the panels between the uprights were lions, bulls, and cherubim, and on the uprights as well. Above and below the lions and bulls were wreaths of hammered work. Each stand had four bronze wheels with bronze axles, and each had a basin resting on four supports, cast with wreaths on each side. On the inside of the stand, there was an opening that had a circular frame one cubit deep. This opening was rounded with its base work it measured a cubit and a half. Around its opening, there was engraving. The panels of the stand were squared, not round. The four wheels were under the panels, and the axles and the wheels were attached to the stand. The diameter of each wheel was a cubit and a half. The wheels were made like chariot wheels. The axles, rims, and spokes and hubs were all of cast metal. Each stand had four handles, one to each corner, projecting from the stand. At the top of the stand, there was a circular band half a cubit deep. The supports and panels were attached to the top of the stand. He engraved cherubim, lions, and palm trees on the surface of the supports and on the panels in every available space, with wreaths all around. This is the way he made ten stands. They were all cast in the same molds and were identical in size and shape. He then made ten bronze basins, each holding forty baths and measuring four cubits across, one basin to go on each of the ten stands. He placed five of the stands on the south side of the temple and five on the north. He placed the sea on the south side and at the southeast corner of the temple. He also made the pots and shovels and sprinkling bowls. So Hiram finished all the work he had undertaken for King Solomon in the temple of the Lord. The two pillars, the two bowl-shaped capitals on top of the pillars, the two sets of networks decorating the two bowl-shaped capitals on top of the pillars, the 400 pomegranates for the two sets of networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network decorating the bowl-shaped capitals on top of the pillars, the 10 stands with their 10 basins, the sea and 12 bowls under it, the pots, shovels, and sprinkling bowls, all these objects that Hiram made for King Solomon for the temple of the Lord were of burnished bronze. The king had them cast in clay molds and in the plain of the Jordan between Sakoth and Zarathon. Solomon left all these things unweighed because they were so many. The weight of the bronze was not determined. Solomon also made all the furnishings that were in the Lord's temple. The golden altar, the golden table on which the bread of the presence, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the right and five on the left in front of the inner sanctuary, the gold floral work and lamps and tongues, the pure gold basins, wick trimmers, sprinkling bowls, dishes, and censers, and the gold sockets for the doors of the innermost room, the most holy place, and also for the doors of the main hall of the temple. When all the work King Solomon had done for the temple of the Lord was finished, he brought in the things his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and the furnishings, and he placed them in the treasuries of the Lord's temple. Ecclesiastes 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labor at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are weariness, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. 
Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before, our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this, too, is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guided me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I brought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me, and all this my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure." My heart took delight in all my labor, and that was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of a fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless, for the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten." Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil in which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days they work in grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless.
A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind." There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet, no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear Him. Whatever it has already been and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account." And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust and dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Psalm 4. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long will your people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. Many, Lord, are asking, who will bring us prosperity? Let the light of your face shine on us. Fill my heart with joy. When their grain and new wine abound, in peace I will lie down and sleep for you alone, Lord. Make me dwell in safety. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Hear my cry to help, my King and my God, for you, for to you I pray. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning I lay my request before you and wait expectantly. For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. 
The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful you, Lord, detest. But I, by your great love, can come into your house. In reverence I bow down toward your holy temple. Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with malice. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they tell lies. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. So today we continued with our story of Solomon, and we also started the book of Ecclesiastes. As you may already know, Ecclesiastes is considered a wisdom book, one of the three core ones in the Bible. The other two include Proverbs and Job. Dr. Mackey describes Proverbs as the provincial or expected wisdom, sort of like gravity principles, if this, then that, like cause and effect relationships. It's the general. These really became fairly universal and normalized. Across most cultures, there's different proverbial types of wisdom that are sometimes very similar. Then Ecclesiastes describes how sometimes life can be unfair and doesn't always make sense. Sometimes this leads to endings that don't make sense or it takes away meaning from what already is. Then in Job, we learn that sometimes things can seem utterly and completely unfair and unjust, almost like you're targeted. Yet, through all these instances, the emphasis, the answer is not what we think. It's not some rationalized statement or words from God, but the word of God points to the who. The who is God himself. He is wisdom. He is the word or rationality logos, and he wants our faith and trust. He wants a relationship with us, and he wants us to remember that he is good and he delivers on his promises. Marty Solomon, Brent Billings, and Kevin Leo describe how most of scripture are set in a story where God's people are stuck in redemption cycles. They prefer this to the idea of uh, sin cycles because the emphasis in a redemption cycle is on God. As we've seen, people are appointed or step out in faith and obedience like many characters we've been reading about. And sometimes they do this slowly, sometimes right away, sometimes just a little bit, sometimes in big ways. Then there is some sort of failing, falling, or complete and utter moral defection from obeying God and staying faithful to his mission. Then, of their own choosing, they have self-exiled themselves from God into the hands of the adversary. And God allows us, allowed them to run away from him. But as is expected, people suffer when they're in the hands of the adversary and in disordered, chaotic conditions. The, they long for a savior to be rescued and restored, redeemed back into the purpose they were made for and the relationship designed for them where they will thrive in God's order and shalom. Marty Solomon describes how God's people at the end of the Torah were put at the crossroads, the center of the earth in Israel. 
Then we read in Judges, and we've been reading about the story of the human kings of Israel. And it wasn't just that Israel wanted a king. They wanted one, remember, that looked like their neighbors. So God gave them the donkey herder Saul when God himself is king and wants to be king over Israel and our hearts and the whole universe, everything he created, right? Wow, we had definitely seen these cycles of redemptions and full illustrative effect through all of those micro stories. Saul and Solomon really had their hearts turned by their lust for empire, as Marty Solomon describes. And while David fell to lust as well, his heart was not completely turned, and God was able to redeem his heart, but not without consequence. On one hand, Marty Solomon says we can read it as the people's sinfulness, but we can also read it as the slow, endless patience of a loving God. I love that. Sometimes I think I, I get sad and I focus on the sinfulness of the people, and then it makes me, you know, it triggers the, okay, well, what do, what do I do about it, or what should we do about it, or what did they do about it? But I think sometimes I don't spend enough time focusing on the endless patience of a loving God in the story. And Marty Solomon qualifies that being in a redemption cycle is different from being a part of the anti-story. Becoming a part of the anti-story is a hardening of your heart where one has shifted their identity to the adversary and is actively seeking to work against God and what he's doing, and you fully are completely aware of what he's trying to do. And David and Solomon, human kings that also had bright moments of obedience to God, are credited with writing at least some, if not part of these wisdom literature books, but it's highly debated when you get into the weeds of it. Traditionally, there are really only three wisdom books, as mentioned, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And Solomon is noted to be the author of some of, or at least the, uh, I don't know if you'd call it producer, editor of Proverbs, pulling them together. Again, highly debated. And some say he wrote or didn't write or wrote part of Ecclesiastes 2, but again, not, not definitive. Job's author is unknown, really, but some say it was Moses. The other wisdom books sometimes included are the Song of Solomon, also ascribed to Solomon writing them, and Psalms, which is largely accredited to David, uh, King David as the author. Catholics sometimes also include some of the Apocrypha books as books of wisdom, like the Book of Wisdom, Sirach and Barak, too. So that's just some interesting context. Marty Solomon refers to the books of wisdom as tools for our journey when we are stuck in redemption cycles. I think that's pretty cool. One of these tools is song, and we sing not only because we want to, but to remember, to trust, to keep practicing discipline and the call of the story. I think that's pretty cool, the presence of song in many of the wisdom books. We also need proverbial wisdom, nuggets that are mostly black and white, but they're simple and easy to remember. But as Kevin Lau says, the Proverbs lack comprehensiveness and their sayings, which are generally, and I'm trying to emphasize the word generally, true. They may not always be true. There may be exceptions, and they may have or need modifications in certain conditions in order to be more true. This is why they lack comprehensiveness. So Marty Solomon gives the example from Proverbs 10.3, the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he denies the craving of the wicked. This is generally true, but there are exceptions for reasons we cannot be certain, but we are certain that God is good 
His wisdom, he is wisdom itself, and in a kingdom with no end, there this will ultimately be true. But we may not know if this is more like an individual, like ascription for this verse, group, collective, an overarching condition, or something that's to come to fruition in the end. Does that make sense? Like the the exact people, number of people, individuality, the time frame. We don't know all those details. And the very next verse talks about the idle hands make one poor and diligent hands bring wealth. Again, generally true, great working principle. But sometimes people that don't do much are wealthy and people that are diligent are poor. So there are exceptions and so we need more wisdom than that. So let's zoom in for a minute on Ecclesiastes, which at first you're like, or if you're me, I'm, I'm like, how is this wisdom? Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book that offers more depth of insight than Proverbs. It touches on the fact that life isn't fair, sometimes doesn't make sense. Maybe we truly do feel like it's meaningless. So it touches on some of the why and what for types of questions, which we know are critically important to life. If you're a student of mine, and Marty Solomon reminded me of this too, you know how much I love the Why or Golden Circle TED Talk of Simon Sinek. And those of you who also know my research know I'm a big fan of meta-ethics, right? So this is distinct. The reason I like meta-ethics is because it asks the second order knowledge questions like how do we know this uh, this is true or what's it for or why? First order knowledge questions ask direct questions about the world. For me, this is similar to the most popular you know, brand or sub-brand of ethics, which are normative ethics, the study of right and wrong. Some pursue understanding right and wrong by using deontological or duty ethics, asking questions about what's our responsibilities and to whom. Others from a teleological perspective that seek to know what is a good or, or a good or moral outcome desired, and it's concerned less with how it's achieved. And then there are also utilitarian ethics, what's good or moral as an outcome for the most people in the situation, for example. And virtue ethics and other types of normative ethics are all asking for what I think is more like a list or a prescription or a clear course of action, sort of like proverbial wisdom. And I think that that's really great. And when we then try to apply it in context to, for example, business or nursing or policing or teaching, it's a wonderful exercise. All of this is a great exercise and important to moral and ethical reasoning and development. I guess I just wonder why we aren't also exploring and examining with more rigor and tenacity the third branch of moral philosophy, which is metaethics. This asks the follow-up questions to a proposed normative ethic or list, prescription, or course of action. It explores and examines the word choice, sources of those words, and rationality to determine how the conclusion was drawn. How do you know XYZ is good, bad, better, or best? Right? So I love that question. On the surface, it seems like Ecclesiastes is saying that everything is meaningless and vanity. As Marty and Kevin summarize, and it can feel kind of sad and depressing, but Marty Solomon describes the writing style as a bait and switch strategy. If you're familiar with that in marketing, you do not like this concept, and it can be hard to digest. Bait and switch strategy, where you're being initially sold that everything in life is meaningless, and then there's this hint, unless, unless, unless you have God, then everything, work, relationships, all of it has purpose. Simon Sinek and I tend to agree. Companies that know their purpose, know their why, do better than those who only know what they do. 
I think this is also true for representative leaders in Christ as well. If we know our why, if we come close to God's word and his details, we are clearer on who he is, who we are, and it helps us to make more meaning, more sense, be more wise with our understanding of and response to everything, including work, relationships, all of it, because we're leaning in to God's way of seeing it. God's way of doing it. And we'll continue to add clarity on this, hopefully, tomorrow. Pray for me. I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.